This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So we got to set this Business Week agenda, Carol, with these Fed minutes. Yeah, totally. And I got to say, I just opened them up uh, off the Fed website. So we're all kind of reading uh, in real time at the same time. Uh, Here's one headline. Fed officials reviewing the policy strategy in July. Well, yeah, that's what they did. So Uh, looking back at it, (laughs) let's get into it with people who are far smarter than me when it comes to the Fed. Kathleen Hayes is with us, Global Economics and Policy Editor at Bloomberg News. She's on our access line. And Dave Wilson also on the remote access uh, He's in New Jersey. He's our stocks editor. But Kathleen, let's start with you. Like I said, we all are opening this up at the same time right. in real time. And um, let's let's just what's tell jumping out to, for you. Yeah. Well, first of all, this is you. They're usually about fifteen or sixteen pages, you know, and and they're not necessarily. You know, there, there's a lot in there for anybody. So I know our Fed team in Washington is. Uh, looking over very quickly. They're saying refining the statement could help improve transparency. So let's put this in perspective. They're reviewing their policy strategy at the July meeting. Maybe if they refine the statement itself, it can prove transparency. Now, everybody who knows, and if you don't, the policy statement is about five paragraphs. It's kind of boilerplate. They use certain phrases to mean certain things. They change a word here or there. And I think it leaves a lot of people glad, number one, the Fed Chair Jay Powell comes out and explains what they did and why and takes tons of questions from reporters. But at the same time, I think people feel, couldn't you write something longer if you gave us more information about what you're thinking and and how it may be something conditional? You know, you don't think you're going to raise interest rates for a long time unless, right, you don't see it now. And maybe that's what they're referring to. And I remember, of course, they've had a, a just almost a year-long policy review, the Fed listening mis- meetings all over the country. And in September, they are widely expected to put put their their conclusions out. And one of the other things I think we're going to look for in the minutes is anything they said about the inflation target and moving from, we're going to keep it at 2% or try to get it to 2% recently. And then we get there, it's a ceiling and we stop. That's what people have assumed. And there's a lot of Fed officials saying, no, what we're going to say is 2% is our target. But when we've been way below the target for years, it's okay to go above uh, for a while to, mm. to get it kind of straightened out. The question is how far above and how long above. That's the kind of thing. But there's the, the Fed can't really change its policy right now, right? Virus is still there. Uh, economy is still weak. There's no reason for them to hint at anything different. Uh, but uh, uh, I think these other questions that people are waiting to hear more about are very important. I just right. want to say in terms of um, market reaction, seems like from our, uh, our Fed blog that we're doing, our live blog, not much reaction yet in the markets. If I look at the equity markets, they're pretty much where they were prior to the release of the minutes. Uh, they are pointing out, though, the long end of the Treasury uh, market, those yields turning a little higher, 30-year yield at a session peak of one40 but let's let's talk a little bit about the equity trade. Dave Wilson, come on in on that. Well, you have the S&P 500 near its highs of the day, but you haven't seen a whole lot of movement. 
uh, three-tenths of a percent gain at most, and, and we're approaching that at this point. But really the story of the day is Apple poking its head above $2 trillion in market Gosh. value. First U.S. company <laughs> ever to do that. You know, Saudi Aramco, when they went public, was just above $2 trillion when the shares started trading. So that's perhaps the next milestone for uh, Apple in terms of their valuation. Uh, you know, Apple, uh, at least one big reason why, you know, stocks are moving up at this point. And then you can point to Target, uh, which had earnings out that were pretty well received. And those shares up 12% leading the S&P 500 here. Yeah, I do want to say the market, though, coming down a little bit. On these yeah, just in the last right? couple of seconds. I yeah. mean, it, it must be that somebody found something they didn't like. Or, you know, we're getting co- close to the highs of the day. And, of course, you're at record levels for the S&P 500, above where we were yesterday when we broke the uh, February right. high. So, you yeah. know, it's understandable. Perhaps people might want to pull back a bit. And so, Kathleen, what is top of mind for the Fed right now in this moment? Because, you know, this is a little bit backward looking in terms of, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of figuring out what they were thinking. We know that this is fast moving economically, medically, all of these things. You're talking to people all the time in and around the Fed. What are they thinking about right now? Well, they're thinking about the fact that they have done things to support the economy that have helped, you know, support. Support it. You know, there are a lot of businesses that have been able to stay on their on their feet because the Fed provided lots of liquidity. Uh, they've done everything they can to stabilize markets. And they every time somebody talks, sometimes whether they're asked or not, they say, and we have done what we can do with monetary policy. As Jay Powell has said, the Fed can lend, but it cannot spend spend money, right? Mm-hmm. That goes to Congress. That's where the action has to come next. I think they're probably watching these stalled stimulus talks as much as anything else. They've got to be watching virus numbers. Uh, we've got a great chart on the Bloomberg. It's virus hotspots. The top line is the U.S. And those numbers have come way down compared to the peak in July 16th, less than half of the, what they were. 78,000 new cases being you know, is the total or was that or new ones daily, whatever it was. Um, and it's down it's half. It's in half. And the Fed has said all along, you want to determine what the economy does, watch the virus. There was just a guest on with David Weston from the Attorney General from North Carolina, wasn't it? Saying, you know, they sent the kids back to school and now they got to send them home. Uh, That's the kind of thing that you get get a little momentum going maybe and then it it gets hobbled again. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Kathleen Hayes, a Blo- uh, Bloomberg News Global Economics and Policy Editor. Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk a little bit about schools reopening, the medical side of that, the social side of it. And it is a complicated issue, Carol, because mm-hmm. not everyone has the same access to health care. Not everyone has the same sort of job. We have to worry about the most vulnerable among us. And that's exactly what Dr. Ramon Talaj does. He's the founder and chairman of Somos Community here, joining us on the phone from New York City. Dr. Talaj, really nice to have you here with Carol and myself. Um, um, thank you for you to help me with you, please. So we are talking so much about reopening schools, especially in New York City. It's the world's or the nation's, excuse me, largest school system. What needs to happen for it to be safe? Well, in, in order for it to be safe, it should be a discussion between all the people, especially the parents of the children, the school teachers, the doctors, obviously the authorities. But at this point, I don't see that happen. We've been trying for that to happen, especially us, the doctor, to talk and be part of the conversation. But we've been the one in the 
I say in the front of the battle from the beginning, since March, we've been doing this testing, education, and I don't think we're ready and, to open the school because nothing has changed since March. What do, you, fact, what do you mean nothing has changed since March? Oh, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. In March, why do we close the school? We close it because the virus killed. There's no vaccine. There's no treatment. Anything of those things have changed? I don't think so. And so why... So why then do you think people are rushing so much to open schools? Is it an economic question? Is it that, I mean, we talk about this all the time, that people, you know, need their kids to go back to school so that they can continue to work? I know this is something you think a lot about. So why, why is the pressure there? Well, there's no one answer for when you're dealing with the pandemic that nobody knew about it. Uh, nobody has lived 100 years. And most of our scholars have failed to tell us the truth of this virus. But we in the forefront have been, since March, telling us what's going on. Right now, we know this. 42% in our neighborhoods have tested positive in our test that we do. We, in Somos, 2,500 doctors, or those ones, more than 200 are pediatrics and 180 family practices who take care of 200,000 kids, which is almost close to a fourth, the fifth, the fifth of all the kids in New York City. We've been testing them. 42% in our neighborhoods are positive. This is the average between the four main borders that we are on. Then, if that's true, that means that 58% has not seen the virus yet. If you open the school, and the number that the mayor or the governor has given us, 1% to 2%, that means for every, every 1,000 kids, 20 to 10 will be positive. Right. So you're saying, they so will you're, join the other one who are negative. So you're saying you guys have been testing kids in, in communities, and you represent largely many of certainly the public school systems in New York City. 42% of those kids are positive. I'm guessing a fair amount are asymptomatic. And the concern is that they're going to be in the community and there will be spread. No, let me tell you, 42% positive in blood tests. That means they already had the disease, the okay. IgG. Okay. That means that 58% and haven't seen the virus. Therefore, those ones will be exposed in the school with a ten, with a one or two percent that is estimated, they say, is positive now. Therefore, for each thousand kids, 10 to 20 going to the school will be positive. Then the other one will get infected. The majority will never have symptoms, but they go back to the houses. Who's going to get infected? The parents and the grandparents. The right. people who are the most need, they have to find the food day to day. They don't have a steady job. They lost their job. They couldn't buy medication. They have no insurance. We've been hitting very hard. But you don't think with New York City, we talked about this before we started this interview for our New York audience. You don't think, um, Dr. Talaj, we talked about the city's positive COVID-19 test rate, you know, to the lowest since the pandemic began in March. I mean, the numbers have come way down. You don't think that's strong enough, good enough, safe enough for kids to go back? I just give you the example. I'm going to ask you, do you have kids? Will you send it? Knowing that if you have 1% and the school has 1,000 kids, 10 will be positive. That's 1%, 10. Mm-hmm. I mean, those 10 will jump around. Kids are kids mm-hmm. in the school with the 580 that in our neighborhood are still negative, And they will get infected. There's no one answer. And then you ask me about what happened if they stay at home. Who's going to take care of them? Right. The mother needs to work. The father needs to work. Otherwise, they can't survive. They lose their job. If they find a job to do, if they lose their job, they have no insurance. There's no one clear answer. But whichever is the answer has to be done between all the parts talking together, the teachers, the parents, obviously, 
the doctors in the community, we are willing to give 500 computers. If they are going to open, we want the nurses in the school. Yes, we need them. And we want them to be attached to the primary care. That is interchange of information according to all the HIPAA compliance. But we could tell them, not only the vaccine uh, that could happen at some point, how, who and when they were right. infected, how many are infected, and what kind of vaccine they need for all the diseases. Dr. You don't Talaj, want an epidemic within the pandemic. So, Dr. Talaj, what does a good plan look like? What do we need to do at this point? Do we just need to wait for a vaccine? There's no question. There is no one answer for that. I agree totally with the teachers' association. We have to wait. We have to implement something that we all call a solution. I know it's going to be painful. But if we open right now, the way it is, there's no different from March. Still, people are positive out there, and they will come to the school, and the kids who not see the virus will get infected, and they will bring it home. And elderly and parents are going to die. They're going to be very sick, and we don't want to see the same wave happen before in New York City. We don't. So I do if, want... And if, and if they open, right. I don't, don't want to see one of my kids going to public hospital to get tested. That's preposterous. They should be tested by the pediatricians or in the school. Well, so is is that how, I mean, a vaccine is not around the corner. We may not even get something before the end of the year. And some say maybe it'll be a year from now before we really have something that's very successful in terms of the immunity it it creates in individuals. But I do wonder, Dr. Talaj, in the meantime, there is pressure to get kids back to school because there are those who, as you know, can hire private tutors or, you know, learn from home successfully and so we are worried about who gets left behind as a result of this if we could have rapid testing in schools and administered by medical professional would that make it safer significantly would your opinion change about the safetyness of or the safety of having kids back at school let me ask you a question are you talking about to do 1.1 million tests every three days (laughs) i guess i guess that's not realistic Certainly not today. Start, let's, let's start that way. We are, you know, we are physicians. We believe in science. Besides, I'm very trusting in God and Christian and Catholic. But I'm telling you right now, it got to be some kind of business if they want to open the school the way we're talking about. Nothing has changed since March. And we've been in the forefront. And we, we were the first one who gave the alert at the beginning of March. I mean, sorry, at the end of March. Mm-hmm. When we told them 70% of the people in Queens are positive. Stop. We need to isolation. They were looking for ventilators. We know what we're saying. We don't have the answer yet. There's no science answer about this virus. Certainly, we know that the vaccine that I produce, they want to produce it because they want to create antibody in the kids. Now we know that 42% of our kids has antibody. That's an average for our neighborhood. Therefore, 58% is the most important number. Those are negative. They haven't seen the virus. Those will get infected. Here we go again. Here we go again. And most of the time, children does not have symptoms. Right. So then do we just need to wait for herd immunity then? Well, I just tell you what the facts are. Mm. Now, we sit down together and the teachers, the parents, the stakeholders decide this is the way we go. Things could go wrong, could go right. It will be casualties. That's probably what's had to happen. This is really, we're dealing here with this, we call it a solitude virus, because people are dying alone. They cannot even see their family. 
I don't want to see another round the same way we saw it a few months ago when so many people died in our neighborhood. Those are the same ones who have no computers. Their father has no computers at home to take the kids. They, are no, they don't know they have Wi-Fi. All of these things you have to put in consideration. But there's no one answer. One thing is an answer. This virus still killed the same. There's no vaccine. There's no treatment. So bottom line, you would say no schools open come September in New York City. Just quickly. Okay. Just got about 30 do, seconds. And if they do, we will be exposed to catastrophe. All right. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. We look forward to keeping in touch with you. Dr. Ramon Talaj, founder and chairman of Somos Community Care. It is a network of independent physicians, more than 2,500 healthcare providers uh, involved uh, serving predominantly Latino and immigrant communities. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Check out this Bloomberg Business Week story because let's not forget, with despite everything going on, hackers never let up. This story at Business Week about how hackers bled 118 bitcoins out of COVID researchers in the United States. So yeah, there is a virus angle here. Carter K. Marotra is cybersecurity reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Carter K., interesting story. Tell us what's going on. So in early June, um, attackers, cyber attackers from a, a cyber gang uh, broke into the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. UCSF is uh, famous for its med school and its teaching hospital and was, was in the midst of some COVID-related research. They were looking into, um, at the time, we were still wondering uh, whether hydroxychloroquine could, could offer any redeeming value as, as treatment. Uh, they were looking into contact tracing uh, programs. They wanted to know who was adversely affected most by COVID. And uh, in that first week of June, hackers locked up seven of their servers um, and, uh, and demanded $3 million in ransom. Uh, it took about a week UCSF uh, hired a negotiator and some lawyers to, to help them see their way through this. And, and over the course of a week, um, we, we got a glimpse into what it takes to get out of this very, very messy situation. Yeah, so you saw basically the communication between yeah. the operator and UCSF. Tell us what was in there, because the back and forth is fascinating. It's really strange. Uh, so you've got one side that, that is you know, objectively a criminal, right? And in a real-world situation, there's no way you, you uh, offer legitimacy to, to their business model, which is holding you hostage. But in a cyber realm, there's no chance of, uh, or very little chance of at least immediately catching these bad guys. So you have to take them seriously. And that's what this negotiator did, was, was provide them with the respect they needed. They demanded respect. Um, and so the negotiator had to provide them with that sort of certainty that we are taking you seriously. We, we know that this is your business model and, and you're just here to do your job. Uh, and so um, UCSF really had to sort of buy into that. And, and so the back and forth over weeks was, was at times comical, almost like amateur drama-ish. Um, but, uh, you know, it's Cardigan, yeah, I want to do a reading around the table with the lines back and forth here, because you say the guys uh, at UCSF um, were saying to the hackers, we've poured almost all our funds into COVID-19 research to help cure this disease. 
Um, that on top of all the cuts due to classes being canceled has put a serious strain on the whole school. You know, they're like, we don't have the money, basically. And then the operator was like, wait a minute, you know, the school, you know, you collect more than $7 yeah. billion in revenue each year. You got lawyers, you got security consultants. Yeah, we think you should be good for a few mil. Yeah, they just weren't buying it, right? Uh, <laughs> they saw this as a massive institution that spends billions every year, uh, and they should have a couple mil to toss around to uh, get their system back online. Uh, unfortunately, or, or UCSF's uh, contention was that, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We don't know if our students are coming back and if anybody's going to be paying their bills to us this fall. Um, we're trying to research a cure for this this disease. Uh, we just don't have that kind of cash laying around. So their initial offer was $390,000. Um, and, and the operator scoffed at it. He, he, just, uh, he or she just didn't, didn't see it as a reasonable offer uh, because they, they obviously have a job to do as well. And you know, like any salesperson, they have a boss as well. Uh, and they were afraid of taking 390 to their boss in the first place. They said, look, yeah. you have to do better than that. Well, and you know, down lower in this story, and I encourage everybody to read this because it, it does take some twists and turns, and you're reminded that as cinematic as this is, and I couldn't help thinking if they made the big Lebowski now, it would have to involve some some Bitcoin. <laughs> um, but, you know, you do have some really interesting moments where the representative from UCSF basically is like, look, man, like as you say, like my job's on the line here. People are essentially making fun of me. They think I totally messed this up and you have the operator coming back and be like it's really not your fault we could do this to anyone i mean it's chilling in a lot of ways and it's it's really true um and, and so the most important aspect of that is it's it's un important to understand i guess that this is a negotiation tactic as much as it is a reflection of what's going on at ucsf yeah. so it is entirely possible that this individual was being blamed for the hack and you know victims of ransomware attacks typically don't want to talk about this in public because being victimized can be, uh, there's, there's a notion that it's embarrassing, right? right. But here, um, you know, this, this attack, uh, sorry, the, the negotiator um, presented that, look, I am um, being held at fault here, and there's no way out of this unless you help me get through this. So will you please, um, you know, help find a solution, one that's reasonable? Uh, and that, I think, really um, sort of appealed to, to the operator because they saw, look, this is a person who's taking us seriously, who's willing to work with us. I will, I will make money off of this one way or another. And it, it did help. I told you it needs a table reading, right? Yeah. Like, Jason, Absolutely. you play you play the hacker. I'll play one of the negotiators. Yeah. Uh, Cardigan, yeah. you can like kind of, you know, be the narrator. <laughs> yeah, you can I mean, direct us off. You'll be the yeah. clock. Yeah, totally. You could be the clock. Like I could see it as like a kind of a one-act play. I mean, it's just, this is our times, right? I mean, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that we are, despite to some extent we have better controls, we still have to deal with stuff like this. Just got about 40 seconds here. Uh, it's absolutely true. And, and what the operator was saying was, in fact, the truth. This could happen to anyone. Uh, and it wasn't the fault of UCSF. They were a victim, right? And, and the university had to do what it could to, to get out of it. But it's important to understand that if you are attacked, um, talking about it and explaining what happened to you will help others defend right. against similar attacks in the future. Yeah, well, props to them for sharing this story with you, totally. and uh, props to you for telling it so well. We really appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, check it out on the Bloomberg and Bloomberg.com. 
Kartike Marotra is cybersecurity reporter for Bloomberg News. He joined us on the phone from San Francisco. UCSF hack shows evolving risks of ransomware in the COVID era. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, for this edition of Bloomberg Green, we turn to one of our faves, Noah Buhire, finance reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Seattle. And he's looking south in this case toward California, where we know those wildfires are raging. If it's not one thing, it's another there in California. Climate, obviously, a huge piece of this fire risk. But there's a guy who's got a cure of sorts. Noah, this is a phenomenal story. We always love talking to you. Everybody has a guy. He's got a guy. (laughs) I mean, this is really something. Tell us about what's going on here. Yeah, so this uh, feature... Um, I reported is about a, a, a guy named Jim Mosley. He started a company several years back. Uh, the name is Sunfire Defense. And basically, he's selling a variety of uh, wildfire protection gear uh, or uh, that, that homeowners can use to, to help harden their homes. And, you know, when a wildfire comes through, hopefully will help save the structure. Um, the, the problem is that uh, one of his main products, it's called SPF 3000, uh, has uh, uh, drawn the attention of uh, some attorneys uh, in Santa Barbara and the L.A. City attorney, um, and they're basically alleging that he's made uh, you know, false or misleading claims about this product, um, you know, namely that it's not nearly as effective as he says it is and uh, uh, that it's toxic even after he said that it was a, um, you know, not harmful to humans or animals and that kind of stuff. So tell us, you actually, I believe, witnessed it firsthand? Yeah. So in February, actually, before the pandemic shut everything down, I spent a day with him in Los Angeles and got a demonstration of the product. And it's, you know, it's pretty compelling. He, he takes a stick that he says was treated with uh, this substance and uh, takes a blowtorch to it. And, you know, the part of the stick that uh, hasn't been treated um, gets very brittle and breaks. And the part uh, that is uh, gets a nice char on it. But then, you know, he'll take a key out of his pocket or a coin and scratch that off. And you see the wood beneath. Can I just mention the cost of this? You put your story $3.50 per square foot, which means it costs tens of thousands of dollars to cover a large home using SPF 3000. I mean, this isn't, I mean, this isn't cheap. Now, mind you, if you're saving a multi-million dollar home, it's pretty inexpensive, I guess. But I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, look, that's, yeah, that's the value proposition. And, you know, uh, Mosley, you know, has an interesting client list as a result. I mean, he uh, has treated uh, parts of the Neverland Ranch. He uh, uh, treated the home of Star Wars actor Mark Hamill in Malibu. Um, Dean Koontz, the best-selling novelist. Uh, he, he's managed to attract the attention of some well-known folks. And, I mean, how much of this, you know, sort of taking a step back, Noah, is about the fact that especially, I mean, as we see these headlines, it's just unbelievable the, to be reminded of this wildfire risk. And, and I was reading uh, and listening to a story recently by actually by a friend of mine out at KQED in California talking about the enormous risk of wildfires, especially to, you know, those 
most vulnerable and assisted living homes and nursing homes. Uh, you should check that out as, as an aside. But um, I, I mean, people will sort of do whatever they can in many ways. He, he's taking advantage of people, one could argue, who are, are desperate for any solution here. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's essentially what the, the district attorney in Santa Barbara and the city attorney in L.A. are arguing, is that is that he's this is a predatory company, that he's preying on people's insecurities and fears and the, you know, very well-established fact that wildfire risk is, is high in a lot of parts of California and climate change is making it worse. I mean, that's that's ultimately why I wanted to do this story. Uh, there, you know, Mosley is not alone. There are lots of people and lots of companies peddling fixes to this problem. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that development patterns in a changing climate have created a situation where you've got, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of real estate at risk um, in this state. And, um, you know, people who live there are at a point that they're willing to just put their hope and their faith in unproven or, you know, not very well tested solutions to the problem. And, you know, one of the things we tried to highlight, this is really a story of our moment right now. Uh, we're, we're, we're going through um, a lot right now with the coronavirus, and, and there are parallels there. People are, are, are searching for, yes. for cures to that disease, and, um, you know, in the absence of, of a solution and a, a vaccine, uh, people are just grasping for, for whatever they can. No, it's a really good point. I'm glad you made that parallel because it, it did certainly occur to me as I was reading your piece. Uh, Noah Buhayer, thank you so much, finance reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us on the phone from Seattle. Check out his story in Wildfire Ravage, California. A salesman is peddling a cure. Read that story and more on climate news, and science, and the environment at Bloomberg.com slash green. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. And as we head toward that, we're about 11 minutes away, less than 11 minutes away. Let's check in with Michael Cugino, President and Portfolio Manager for the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. He joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Michael, how are you? How are things in San Francisco? Good afternoon, Jason. Uh, pretty good, although we've had a few fires, um, you know, north and east of the city, um, Tahoe area, the wine country, which is making the air quality not quite as good. We had a lot of dry thunder and lightning earlier in the week. Um, didn't amount to much rain, but some of that lightning hit the ground and caused some fire. So it's, it's creating an early start to the fire season, which has been difficult. Yeah, well, and on top of, you know, California, and I know Northern California and Southern California have had uh, sort of a different experience of late and really throughout the, the pandemic. But um, I, I tell you, I know it's not getting any easier for you guys out there. And yet, in the midst of all this, we have a market that continues, even if we're off our highs today, to, to grind higher. What do you make of this? We're asking everybody we can talk to about this seeming disconnect between a, a pretty scary underlying economy, a health crisis, and a market that is setting records. 
Well, it's not unusual for the stock market to not exactly correlate to the broader economy. I mean, for the better part of the 2000s, I mean, you had you know roughly one to two percent GDP growth, and you had stock market annual returns up in the teens to twenty percent or more. Um, so it's nothing unusual. The stock market is predicting future economic activity in all likelihood. Some of the things that are driving the stock market, um, you know, a lot of the gains are centered in, in a few industries like technology, um, information services, communications um, that are doing very well in this downturn versus other broader economy industries that are more cyclical, that are more um, dependent on human labor but and, wait, wait, and raw wait, materials Michael, and those sorts of things. I have to jump in. 2000 didn't end so well. Uh, no, I mean that was the beginning of the 2000 recession, um, uh, and uh, you know you had a 10-year run at that point. That uh, that you know are we talking 2019? Are we talking about 2000 itself 20 years ago? Well, I'm just saying. You know, you said you know we've seen market disconnect before from kind of what's going on in the real economy, and I'm just thinking you mentioned you know the 2000 run up, and it didn't end so well. And I do wonder if you think we're so disconnected. Uh, we have seen it before, but do you think this isn't going to end well? Well, at some point, I mean, to me, there's a there's a broad long-term correl- you know, correlation between stock market performance and the economy because stocks are driven on the basis of the health of the economy and the ability to, to own the, the companies that make goods and services and that sort of thing. So you do have a broad correlation over time. But in shorter periods, you can have all kinds of anomalies that, that make it so the stock market has a great year and the economy does not, or vice versa. And, and what I'm saying is that in this particular environment, you have one of those. You have investors anticipating a better economy coming out of COVID. You have certain industries that are driving a large majority of the market gains that have been doing better than the overall economy during this this period of COVID. So therefore, the stock prices of those companies are going up and maybe giving a warped picture of the broader stock market in light of the weaker, broader economy. So there's anomalies even now that make it so that, again, it's not unusual for the stock market to not exactly track the broader economy. Talk to me about silver and gold, Michael, because I know that that's something you've taken a look at, and I know it's something that's been on the minds of a lot of investors out there. How do you factor those uh, precious metals into the investment thesis? Well, in our in our program, we we believe that you know owning those assets are an integral part of of long term wealth building, and so a failure to own them leaves a hole in your strategy. Um, so our view is to not only own stocks and bonds, but also own commodities, natural resources, real estate, and and gold and silver as asset classes. So we believe in them long term, and when you look at the environment right now, um, with the the Fed backstopping everything, um, with the likelihood of even more stimulus that we've already created with the ability of that stimulus to get onto Main Street, which was not true 10 to 12 years ago. It stayed mostly in the banking system to recap the banks. Um, you know, you have inflationary pressures or potentially um, expected inflationary you know, pressures when the economy begins to grow again. Not only that, but the uncertainty factor created by COVID. I mean, I, to me, there's still a lot of uncertainty with respect to really what's happening. I, you know, and until that gets solidified, I think you could go in a number of directions. So when you add all this up, it's not surprising that the prices of gold and silver have have gone up um, mm-hmm. and, and will likely continue to do so. Keep in mind that gold really didn't do much for most of the, the, right. the aughts. I mean, it was yeah. pretty benign. And it's begun to move again. So there's some valuation catch-up 
um, but also the conditions are fertile. Negative real interest rates across the curve is another big one, um, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. So there's, there's room for gold to go even further and silver as well. If you look at it on a valuation basis, um, you know, the, the value of an ounce of gold is about 0.6 of the value of a share of the S&P 500 index, a valuation metric we haven't seen since the middle of the, the, uh, the aughts, around 207, 208. Um, so it's not overly valued, even though it's had a big run. And, uh, and again, it didn't do much for years. So there's a catch-up period that, uh, that is factoring in as well. And investors are rediscovering it, given this overall backstop. And I think that's, that's why you've seen the moves you've had. I would also say that it's a volatile asset. It can go up and down 100 bucks pretty quickly. So investors need to understand that. But generally speaking, if you buy it and hold it and you look, look back years after you bought it, you're generally up. There's a strong correlation between the value of gold on a long-term basis and the creation of, of the money supply and liquidity and credit, and I don't see that changing at all. So for a long-term investor, pick yeah. your spot, and, and definitely you want to hold some. Well, really, really thoughtful, um, as always. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Cugino, he's President Portfolio Manager at Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds. They've got roughly $2.2 billion in assets under management. The Permanent Portfolio Fund, by the way, in the 96th percentile for funds in its category over the past five years, is up nearly 8% annually in each of those five years. So he's had uh, quite a run. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.